If this life is driving you to drink, you sitting around wondering just what to think. Well, I got some consolation. I'll give it to you if I might. You know I don't worry about a thing, 'cause I know nothing's gonna be alright. Hello, I'm Ellie May O'Hagan, and I'm Owen Jones. And welcome to the second episode of our podcast. Very little to speak about, so event- uneventful. Yeah, not much, not much going on. Slow news. Slow news, period. Yeah. So it's just going to be full of filler, this I would imagine. Um, so the first, obviously the big news of the moment, this is the news everyone's talking about, yeah. defining the future of this it's country. all over the news. All the pundits are talking about it. It's the wall to wall coverage. Name of the podcast. Um, so we had a bit of a debate over this. We tried to crowdsource it. We're a democracy, aren't we? We like yeah. to get people involved. Yeah, we love it. Um, so there were some interesting suggestions for the name of the podcast. Political ramblings, which was our default one, was well, shit, wasn't it? But one was um, which I liked, which was the Jonestown Massacre. Yeah, whoever sent us that one, I don't remember who it was. But that was really good. But we kind of figured that maybe the actual victims of the Jonestown Massacre might not like a pun. Can you imagine that? We just cause fury amongst <laughs> the relatives of Thanks. those yeah. who died in the Jonestown Massacre. So yeah. we haven't done that. Yeah. Also, there was a guy called Mark Rowley, or Rowley who actually went to the trouble of emailing me, uh, who said that it should be Owellian. Oh. Because it's like Owen, which I liked as well. But unfortunately, he, he sent that too late because we'd already decided on a name. Also, um... One of my friends, uh, Tom Wyman, suggested that we name it Owen to Owen, featuring Ellie May O'Hagan, so that it would actually be Owen with the writer Owen Hatherley having a conversation featuring me, just so that we could call it Owen to Owen. So that one was also rejected. Um, what did we also have? We had, oh, a mojo instead of emoji. A I mean, mojo. That was, yeah, that was okay. My partner actually just suggested that we just call it Tits. Tits was also suggested. Which, unfortunately... Which my is... love for him was eclipsed by my <laughs> yeah. desire to have a decent podcast name, so we didn't go with that. So, tragically, that one, it was promising. It certainly would have attracted a certain demographic. Yeah. But come on, I'm going to bang the table. Okay. What is it? Agitpod. Agitpod! <laughs> Agitpod! <laughs> Which I feel is like a total anticlimax now we've been through all those possibly superior names. Maybe even Tits is better. Everyone's but thinking, well, I did... stuck with it now. We've done the artwork. That's it now. People just want the Jonestown Massacre, don't they? Yeah, it was good. Basically, Agitpod, for those of you who don't don't know what that, what that refers to, it refers to the term agitprop, which yeah. means... Agitation, propaganda. Right, it's a Soviet-era thing, not because we're frothing in the mouth Stalinists, obviously we're not, but it's just kind of entered the vernacular, hasn't it? And it's just, it's, it works on a whole number of levels. People go, oh, have you listened to, if they've bothered, the latest <laughs> agit pod? I did and it was shit. That's like what people <laughs> yeah. say. But like, basically, yeah, so if you're explaining, you're losing, as Ronald Reagan says, but I'm going to plough through. Like, basically, the idea is that the purpose of this podcast really is to kind of explain politics to people in a left week left-leaning way so in that sense we thought it was a good to give a nod to uh propagandists of your yeah i mean it's i mean it's I mean, daily mail if they bothered would have a field day no but um <laughs> but also though um please do write a story about it daily mail. i could really use the publicity um yeah do drive the traffic our way but right so just to explain right what we are going to do is lots of not we're gonna have lots of guests including people we just we just don't agree with i've got a youtube channel oh cheeky plug uh, and that's what i do a lot but 
that has been a bit of a biggie, uh, other than the name of our podcast. So we thought it'd be best if, given it's now a week and a half uh, since it happened, to talk about the impending general election. We should acknowledge it's happening. Uh, I think it's probably worth a cursory discussion. So, last week, uh, Theresa May, uh, our Prime Minister, uh, declared that there would be an early election. Everyone was like, oh, God, there's this big announcement. What's it going to be? Is she going to nuke North Korea? She probably just would have nuked it, to be fair, without an announcement. But no, it's uh, not quite nuclear Armageddon. Uh, it's something worse. <laughs> <laughs> now, without doing a I told you so, I have been saying I think there's going to be a general election uh, for an early election for a very long time. I did a video about it before Brexit, saying if Brexit happens, there'll be one. And I said a lot about Labour and its leadership, which not everybody agreed with. Uh, people thought I was a right-wing sellout, etc., because I was worried about this eventuality. We are where we are. Ellie, how do you feel? Come on, hit me well, with it. Well, actually, I found an article that I wrote not long ago that basically predicted that Theresa May would call a snap election in spring 2017 and run on a state slate of stability and clarity. So I think I did quite well there. So um, anyway, but self-plugging aside for both of us, the way that way that way, how did I feel? I felt really shocked, which was ridiculous given the conversation we've just had. Um, that's Keir the cat. If you can hear that in the he, background, that's who also cat. Is, is reeling from reeling from it. Yeah, we've all lost a lot of sleep. Um, yeah, I have lost a lot of sleep over it. I'm very very stressed out about it. I'm very worried. How do you feel about it? Well, it's not ideal. I think even though you know something's going to happen, it's not necessarily something which makes you go. Oh, I'm fine with this. No, I mean, it, it is, um, as we'll discuss, it is a, it, it's a bit of a problem, mm -hmm. uh, not going to lie. Um, so um, for me, I think at first it was, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Uh, but then kind of... Ruddy bloody Teresa. But then a bit of pragmatism, which is, well, we're going to have to find a way through this one, which hopefully doesn't end in absolute calamity. Now, why did she call the election? Kick off. Well, I mean, this sounds like an obvious well, discussion. Well, there's lots the of reasons, aren't there? The first is that, you know, if our, if our listeners don't know about this, particularly the American ones, because I've, I've learned that we do actually have an American listener base. 15 people downloaded it from the so, Dominican Republic as yeah. well. Carry on. Did they? Great. Mm. Hello to our Dominican Republic friends. But basically, there's a bit of a scandal going on at the moment in the Tory party, which is the um, election expenses scandal, because there's a suggestion that the um, Tories overspent in key... Um, constituencies and the, there's even a suggestion there was a suggestion in a Guardian article that, that might have swung the election and it has been revealed that the CPS which is the Crown Prosecution Service uh, is planning on taking action is it against 30 individuals yeah it was about 30 so there is some speculation which I don't think is completely conspiratorial that Theresa May called the election in order to uh, deflect attention from... Well, not just that. I suppose if there was going to be a series of embarrassing by-elections, the way to avoid it is you call a general election. Yeah. And then it just annuls, you know, it's completely irrelevant then. Mm. Uh, you don't have this series of, you know, by-elections under a, under a cloud of, oh, you know, criminality or alleged criminality. Um, so there's that. I mean, the other issue is, look, Labour are in a bad situation. Um I, I think it's all going according to plan, actually. Swimmingly. Now, I don't want to go too much into that, and I hope some of our listeners will forgive us, because we don't pretend not to be biased. Uh, we obviously are people on the left, and at the moment it's a bit, you know, the focus is taking on the Tories, rah, rah, rah. But Labour's polling badly, clearly. But I think what's interesting is one of the biggest reasons for the Tory lead going up 
is UKIP has collapsed. Theresa May successfully basically reunited the right. She's now in some polls up to 50%, which the Tories haven't had. Uh, you know, if, if they get that in an election, they haven't had that kind of result since the mm. 1950s. Um, so lots of people, you know, UKIP's been described as a gateway drug where former, uh, you know, people who maybe didn't vote, people who voted Labour, who were like, yuck, Tories, you know, deindustrialization, Thatcher, don't like that. But this has been a way for them to come over uh, to the Tories. Yeah, I think like that's definitely, I think um, Wales is a really good case study because in Wales, like it, it's a real, like very dominated by Labour. And, um, you know, it's one of those places where in a lot of areas of Wales, you, you know, you just people just can't conceive of voting for anybody else. And actually, I think that's one reason why, like, the turnout to the Welsh Assembly is quite low is because and people feel quite politically alienated is because they're just like, well, Labour's going to get in every time in, in certain seats. And actually, what ha what's happened over the last couple of years is that a lot of Welsh people have turned to UKIP and they did win seven seats in the Assembly. And now two things have happened in that time. Theresa May has effectively adopted UKIP's political programme so now it's kind of put UKIP out of business. But also, and I think this is something that people miss a lot, is that UKIP have been an absolute shambles in the Welsh Assembly. They've completely embarrassed themselves. So why would people bother to vote UKIP when they could vote Tory and get basically the same thing, but without the kind of incompetence? Although actually, I do want to point out at this point that Theresa May is actually quite incompetent, but she does quite a good job of pretending that she isn't. And another reason, I suppose, is Brexit and... You know, the odds of that going particularly well. I mean, I, I met these EU diplomats before the election, uh, before the referendum, sorry. And they were like, uh, I said, I thought Brexit would happen. They weren't very happy about it. And they suggested that uh, Britain would get a bad deal because, uh, firstly, a lot of their voters think Britain already has special treatment uh, because uh, they have anti-EU and anti-immigrant, anti-immigration parties of their own. They don't want them to go, well, look, we'll just, we'll just do what Britain does. Um, and also the precedent of, of a major EU state leaving is bad. So at the moment, you know, people, there's this idea that it's going to hit a lot of problems. This is as good as it's going to get for Theresa May. And the other part of that is Britain's gone through the longest fall in wages since, uh, since Napoleon was emperor of the French, since the Napoleonic Wars. And what's happened for the last two years is that squeeze has stopped. You know, wages were starting to go up a bit, but now they're going down. People are already noticing. I've met people all over mm -hmm. the country and they're saying I've noticed prices going up. Now, that is obviously another reason why the only way is down. So this is basically as good as it gets. Honeymoon, labour in a mess, wages going down, Brexit, election scandal. I mean, in a sense, it's kind of obvious, even though she broke. I mean, she. this is what Labour have to hammer on. She's not a woman of a word. Whatever she says during this campaign, you can't trust a single thing that she says, whatever yeah. pledge on pension jobs. I remember on, on jobs. the 20th of March, Matt, Matt Chorley, who writes for The Times, was tweeting, like, oh, there's not going to be a snap election. Yeah, I mean... It was the 20th of March. It wasn't even that long ago. They were taught over and over again, that was their line. And she's gone back on a word, if you think about it, over and over again. They tried to hike national insurance for self-employed people, despite a Tory pledge, that wouldn't happen. Um, and that was, uh, you know, they only U-turned on that because their back benches wouldn't allow that to happen. Another reason why they called... Uh, an election, no doubt. She was this, you know, Remainer during the referendum and then didn't just reinvent herself as a Brexiteer, but as a hard core Brexiteer. Yeah, she's out faraging Nigel Farage. And that's the thing. And frankly, who would want to do that, honestly? Yeah, Theresa, consider your life She'll options. be standing there with a pint of ale and a fag in her mouth next time she's on TV. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> You're not wrong. Um, but that's the thing, it, you know, it, I think the fact is she has this reputation which she's constructed, which is very, very clever. But she is somebody Labour need to hammer on the basis of 
You know, you can't trust a word that she says. But nonetheless, we are where we are. What is Labour's strategy going to be? What do you think? I mean, the fact is the polling is just very, very, very bad. And not just, you know, the national polling, polling on Labour on the economy, leadership, likelihood of Labour votes to come out, anecdotal evidence not good. I know, I'm not trying to depress people because we're hopefully going to try and make people more optimistic. I'm but- trying to depress people. I don't want any of you to have a good time. <laughs> I am the Theresa May of this podcast. <laughs> no one will benefit. None of you are free of sin. Uh, That's but, more like Tim Farron, actually. Yeah, I still it? love you. Which we will come on to. We will come on to Tim Farron. Yeah, I think, for me, right, so Labour strategy. What I wrote about, I wrote a column this week, which was about the need to have an optimistic message. So often the problem with people on the left, like myself, and I'm going to include you, Ellie, is we often focus on how bad things are, injustice. We, you know, we're defined often by what we're against. We don't like cuts, we don't like privatisation, we don't like wars. We don't how dare like... you? I'm completely against you saying this. <laughs> hey? oh. oh, I see what you did there. Very clever. <laughs> it was a lame and obvious joke and I went for it and I regret nothing. So basically we just don't like everything and that's how it often comes across. Yeah, it's um, true. And if you don't define yourself, you're always defined by your opposition and that's been Labour just generally, it's woes for a very long time. It's always very good. They yeah. define... That was the problem with Labour under Ed Miliband as well. Like it's very much sort of, so. Yeah. And it's a sort of sense of, it's a fear as well. I think that Labour is sort of, you know, under Ed Miliband, there was this kind of, you know, Labour wrecked the economy. They like spent all the money. And Labour was so afraid of seeming that way that instead of arguing against it, they just went, oh, yes, we did. And we're very sorry. And we won't do that again. And like, which was crazy. Well, they allowed the Tories lie, even though they backed every single penny of Labour spending on schools and hospitals, Mm. uh, that spending caused the disaster uh, that became common sense they didn't challenge it so then every time because the Tories define Labour's spendthrift they're going to throw all your money away every time Labour come up with a proposal people go I agree with it they're just going to waste money again like they yeah. did last time actually someone who worked in quite a high position in, in Ed Miliband's government once said to me um Labour trying to convince people that they should invest in the economy is like a drunk trying to convince you that you should drink a glass and a half of wine a day mm. And that was the problem, was that the brand had become kind of toxified and associated with spending too much money. And if you believe, if you're on the left, and one of your key, your shtick really is investing in the future, investing in the economy, investing in services, yeah. investing in people. Like, people, for, people forget it now because, you know, the, the thing is, you know, in the Labour Party, the sort of fashion at the moment is to blame the left for, for every problem that exists. When Ed Miliband was leader, hmm. it was the Labour left who defended... Tony Blair's record in terms of public spending because the rest of the party wouldn't do it because they were so afraid of being seen as though as though they were the ones that spent it, all the It was money. ironic, wasn't it? The lefties, who were the most ardent critics of Blair and Brown, became the ones defending their spending record. But what... So what my argument is, is what Labour need to do because policies don't win elections. Just throwing things that people agree with. Labour have got some great policies. £10 minimum wage, for example. Yeah. Uh, Investing with, in social care. I like that one. Love a bit of that. The NHS as well. Uh, whether it be uh, late payments for small businesses. Free school meals for primary school children. We- paid for by putting VAT on private schools. And now ends a party political forecast <laughs> for the Labour Party. So, but the problem is, is, is that's, that doesn't, that won't win. You, what you've got to do is these policies have to be stitched together with a clear, coherent vision. So everything then, you know, the Tories' long-term economic plan, every policy they came up with fitted into that somehow. So... For me, optimism's got a big part of it. Ronald Reagan, not his biggest fan, not going to lie, but what he did in the late 70s, right-wing Republican president, all the rest of it, 
you know, people at the time felt depressed, decline, unease, insecurity. He said, morning again in America. You know, he quoted this poet, I see America not in the setting sun of a black night of despair. I see America in the crimson light of a rising sun fresh from the burning. You know, he said the best days of America are ahead. Podemos, I was in Spain this weekend. They're a left-wing party who argue for, you know, in, 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 against the cuts that have devastated Spain. And, and they, you know, they could talk about all sorts of miserable stuff. Half of young Spaniards out of work, hundreds of thousands of Spanish families kicked out of their homes. But they, theirs was, their slogan was, when was the last time you voted with hope? Uh, their leader, Pablo Iglesias, said, we think we represent not only the vote of the outraged, but also a vote of hope. We could go on. Barack Obama. Yes, we can. Empowering, collective. We can do this together. Make America great again with Donald Trump. We could go on. Bernie Sanders. He did this... Um, have you seen the ad America? No, I haven't. Oh, it's amazing. I felt like at the end of it, I felt like actually standing and saluting uh, and singing the uh, Star Spangled dun, Banner. Dun, 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 dun. I'm not going to do the whole thing. I got teary, basically. But even Tony Blair in 1997, like I remember I was 12, which did not work out how old I am, um, in 1997. And I remember the party political broadcasts of like people just skipping down the street, desperate to vote Labour, you know. Things can only get better. Yeah. It was, that was the point. Optimism. Yeah. And we're often now often food banks, zero hour contracts, lack of decent homes, poverty. Look, I'm not saying I'm suddenly reinventing myself as a frothing at the mouth player, right? Despite some people arguing I have, um, but that that doesn't win people over. I mean, there's a poll t today which shows that most people don't really think spending cuts have affected them at all because they've been so targeted. You know, the problem is, is if you're just saying we're against the cuts or anything like that then people will go, well, where's your vision for... I don't know, understand what your vision is for the country. So that's Labour's big job now. It needs a vision. It needs to make people feel empowered. We can do this. You know, look at... This This is a country with great potential. Look at what we can achieve. Look at what we've achieved in the past. We can overcome everything. We can rid this country of all its problems. You know, that kind of approach, rather than... Tory Britain. Misery. <laughs> 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 Pushing my bike up Cobbled Hill to go to food bank. That's like literally kind of sometimes feels like what the left's vision of Britain is, is like a kind of miserable Hovis advert. And it, you know, and I actually like we need to talk about the future and what we yeah. can build, like what we stand for, not what we Harold Wilson, the Labour Prime Minister, he, he talked about the white heat of technology, you know, modernising, empowering, optimism, hope, not kind of oh, it's all dreary and rubbish mm. and nasty and grim because people want to feel good. They want to feel optimistic. They want to think that they're voting for something, not against something. So that's, you know, that's Labour's big sort of task, isn't it? Not easy. What I would say as well, though, is I think that um, Labour can't can't just act like Brexit is a sideshow to this election because vote Theresa May's argument is essentially... I'm going to have to go to the EU and negotiate. So this election is just a formality for you to vote me in on a landslide and then the EU will know that I have your backing and they won't be able to mess us around. It's, a com it's completely dishonest, but it's working. I think people do believe it. And, you know, if I may get Blair out for a second, please don't hate me. Um, I'm just going to... She's just invading a foreign country. I'm just, yeah, I'm just going to quickly invade a foreign country and then, um, you know, claim no responsibility for it. Yeah, if I may get Blair out for a second. Actually, uh, he did write quite a good article for The Guardian this week. I hate myself for saying this. Why do you love neoliberalism so much, Ellie? 
Because if you love neoliberalism so much, why don't you move there? <laughs> I, I bloody have. I'm in Britain, mate. <laughs> I'm already here. Yeah, he wrote basically saying that um, Labour needed to run on a slate of not letting Theresa May have a blank check for Brexit. And I think that's actually really important that, like, polls are over and over again that, like, Brexit is the most important issue to British voters at the moment. And Theresa May is arguing that she needs the backing of the electorate to go into negotiations. And I think what Labour should be arguing is she's trying to get your vote so she can go and negotiate behind closed doors without anybody holding to her to account. So you need to vote for us because then we can get the power to hold her to account and not let her just getting away with whatever deal that she feels like with like Donald Trump, you know, that she was holding hands with. Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, because Labour does have, at the moment the problem is, again, it's it's about message discipline. What we do with the Tories, you know, when they always went, we're, we're clearing up Labour's mess, which we heard, I think all of us, thousands of times, ripping our hair out every time they saw it. He played, we're clearing up Labour's mess, bingo, and had a shot every time. I mean, by now you'd be in a very, very serious state. Um, so, but, the, but that, it works. People repeat it verbatim on the yeah. doorstep. And I mean, I went canvassing quite a lot of times and, you know, like during that period and you'd, you'd have voters on the door and they would like just repeat Tory attack lines to you and they'd really believe that they'd thought of it themselves. But actually, they just absorbed it from the media because it was repeated over and over and over again. So that's what that's what Labour has to do. Look, emulate. We don't emulate the Tories in terms of their policies. We're trying to avoid that. But their approach works. You know, that's why with Brexit, Labour's got these positions. They should say them over and over again. We'll keep the benefits of the single market and the customs union. Uh, EU nationals protected from day one. We'll fight for British uh, migrants ab- abroad. Uh, the Great Repeal Bill will be scrapped. Labour will introduce a new rights and protections bill. All workers and consumer and environmental rights protected. Uh, if the final deal is bad, uh, Labour will return to the negotiating table. They need to say these things over and over again in a slightly pithy way than that, to be fair. Because otherwise, they'll be defined by their opponents. Because the danger at the moment, as you know, is a lot of Leave voters go, they're too pro-Remain. A lot of Remain voters think they're all Brexity. Mm. Um Brexity, what an interesting word to coin. Um, so I think, you know, they've got to have key lines that until people's ears are bleeding, until people are screaming for mercy, stop, you know. I mean, I'm already screaming for mercy, so they've at least got one person on side there. That's how I like it. <laughs> anyway, on that innuendo, we move to the Lib Dems. And the reason that I'm saying innuendo is because their leader, Tim Farron, has been in a bit of a tricky situation this week Tim Valley was asked over and over again do you think being gay is a sin and he, he didn't it was reply. gay sex wasn't it no that was the second time okay go on. no no to begin with he said it was about being gay and then he said eventually he said no being gay isn't a sin uh, which was generous then he was asked over and over <laughs> again by multiple reporters um, who were like yeah, repeatedly asked him uh, like Peston LBC's guy do you think gay sex is a sin and he refused to respond now some people, you know, when people like me kicked off over that, they were like, he said being gay isn't a sin. It's like, yeah, but if he doesn't, if he thinks gay sex is a sin, it's like saying, um, I've got nothing against drivers except when they drive cars. Yeah, I've got yeah. nothing against chefs unless they cook. I've got nothing against, I don't know, we could keep going this, football players except when they play football. You know, it, it, by definition, I mean, it doesn't make any sense unless you, as long as you're celibate. Now, he did eventually say, it wasn't a sin, which was very... Yeah, as long as you don't have any intimacy or physical <laughs> affection for your entire yeah. life, that's fine with me. As long as it's purely theoretical. Yeah. Um, you, know, you can maybe hold hands occasionally. But well, ultimately, I want you to fester and die alone. 
<laughs> Blimey. All right. That, that was directed at you. You normally Owen. say that off uh, off the record. I'm glad he did eventually say what he did, because to quote the Bible, I say unto you that likewise, more joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. But does that mean that even like, okay, because um, I'm going to I'm gonna out Owen here, because you're a gay man, aren't you? No. What? Who told you that? <laughs> uh, gross. Uh, yuck. <laughs> and then... Um, but doesn't that I like mean- gays, but I could never eat a whole one. Yeah, a lot of people thought I was hounding this poor man, you know, this poor little elected politician having the audacity to scrutinise him as he seeks... A self-proclaimed liberal. You know, they said, well, it doesn't matter because, you know, it's his personal conscience uh, that, you know, and, and that shouldn't matter. It depends on what he actually does and votes for and all the rest of it. But this weird idea that, like, thoughts don't translate into actions. Like, if thoughts didn't translate into action, I'd be voting Tory. Well, but, like, I th- I believe left-wing things, so therefore I'm voting for a left-wing party. Well, for me, it was a case of... I mean, I just think this is why it was so important, is that if you believe someone is a sinner, then you think they're morally inferior, by definition. <laughs> and I think the problem with that is, you know, when gay people grow up, they grow up in a society which is still, you know, homophobia is absolutely rampant, and they internalise a lot of that prejudice. Uh, mental distress is much higher amongst LGBT people, uh, tragically suicidal thoughts, much higher. People are scared to hold hands in the streets with someone of the same uh, gender. So, you know, there's all that kind of stuff. And I think it, it, it damages people if they are, you know, the, the the sense of being not regarded as the same because they often, people who are gay often feel inferior. They feel judged, they feel rejected. Do you and, think gay people feel a sense of internalised shame? Yes, of, very yeah. much so. And, you know... Alcohol and drug abuse amongst gay men is is, is much higher. The, the first boyfriend I had, yeah, and partly that's self-medication, it's very much linked to that. You, you know, look, I can talk about this because you know, I've written about it. My, my, my first boyfriend came out, uh, he came out at the age of 15 to his parents and they, they sent him to a pseudo-doctor to be cured of his homosexuality. And that had really damaging consequences. He's now recovering meth addict. Mm. You know, and went through a very serious, you know, phase of addiction with a terrible drug. I think a lot of that um, had to do with that sense of internalised shame and rejection, that sense of being inferior morally, that he was afflicted with something which was wrong, which needed he needed, which needed to be rid of. And I, I ju- that's why I get so, you know, I think some people are like this is a partisan point. I don't think it is. I think I take this quite seriously, not least because of his experience. And I just think if you if you're a national leader who is vying in theory to be prime minister, I'm not sure that's going to happen with Tim Farron, uh, to be fair. But if you're seeking to represent people, if if you believe a section of those potential voters are morally inferior, that is an issue. Now he's clarified he doesn't. It took him a while. I don't quite understand why. And it was like extracting. Tea. I feel like in the in the the time that it took for him to clarify, I feel that there was a debate in the public sphere that was quite unseemly. I agree. Like, is it okay to say that gay sex is a sin or not? Actually, no, it's not okay. And it's not okay that this is the debate that we're having. You know, we should have moved past this. And and it felt to me as though the fact that it was even up for grabs as an argument, it felt to me that that was a regression of LGBT rights. And also, I think it is actually quite insulting to a lot of Christians because millions of self-described Christians do not believe being gay or gay sex is a sin. Michael Gove, on the same programme, Peston on ITV, when he was asked about it, he said, I'm a Christian and I absolutely don't think gay sex is a sin. It's how people... um, 
how people love I mean, each it's other. It's not just like Christianity either. Like there's lots of Muslims who don't think that gay sex is a sin. There's lots of Hindus who don't think that gay sex is a sin. Like I don't think it's a requirement of being religious that you have to think that. No, I mean, someone, I got this uh, on Twitter today and at the consequence of this debate and someone saying, um, uh, so, Owen, can you clarify, do you think having a gay orgy is acceptable or would you agree that it's sinful? It's not only acceptable, it's desirable. Well, I said, <laughs> I think they should be compulsory and I hope it's a Labour manifesto commitment. And then they went, oh, really? Well, how many people... <laughs> How many orgies, gay orgies have you had? Some guy crying and wanking in his bedroom. So in any case, yeah. So for me, it was a case of, I do think there's a wider point there, which is about, I think sometimes because of the struggle of LGBT people at great cost and sacrifice, that's why we have all the rights and freedoms we have, laws, you know, from age of consent being equal, adoption, civil partnerships, then marriage, uh, not being discriminated against, you know, being turned away by B&Bs, that kind of thing, is because people fought for it at great cost. But you get some people now who are like, oh, we gave you all your rights, stop shoving it down our throats, nudge, 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 wing, wing, wing. But we still live in a society where we've got so far to go because at the end of the day, you're, if you're gay, it's treated as kind of like, oh, bad luck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, if you say to a straight guy, if a straight guy, for example... So he goes, oh, I thought you were gay. That's the ultimate insult, isn't it? And that is in itself indicative. They know it's something which is heavily judged and seen as inferior. Uh, you know, in the playground, you're exposed to, you know, the word gay being used as a pejorative. Everyone's heard that. Um, and I just think there's this sense of complacency, especially in the age of Trump and the way the Brexit campaign was run, which is, you lot, you've had your party, you've overreached in your struggle for equality. It's our turn now. Mm. Yeah. In a few weeks' time, we're going to go through another general election, just two years after the last one. Great, innit? More elections. Bloody love them. Everyone's um, excited about that. Did you see that woman on BBC News? Not another one? <laughs> Look at Brenda, an election. Everyone's seen Brenda by now. It was a viral video of a woman from Southwest. She had the news broken to her by a, like a correspondent that there was going to be a general election and she captured the mood of the country. There's too much politics. Bloody uh, politics. She's right. She's correct. Aren't politics you? coming out your ears. Right, look, I, I, I suppose, hopefully, Labour will try and gain back some ground and there won't be a calamitous result. Um, and everyone's got to go and campaign. I'm doing lots of campaign days. Tooting, Norwich South, Nottingham South, uh, Sheffield Healy. So we, I want, you know, Google them. Come and join me on campaigning and all the rest of it and i'll be out you know both of us we're gonna be on tv radio all the rest of it making the case against the tories for a labor vote etc etc but you know we've just got to be realistic this is really really tough and there's a very good chance that tories will get a very very big majority now that was my fear in terms of the stuff i've said over the last few months about problems with labor which won't go into um but you know there is a the, the danger is we'll end up with an absolute whopping Tory majority. Um, and it will be very difficult for people on the left to vaguely progressive opinion in, in the aftermath. You know, I think one plan is that Yvette Cooper would become leader by coronation. You know, like Michael Howard, Gordon Brown. Well, they didn't you contest. can see that she's sort of gearing herself up for potential leadership because she keeps making these quite high profile kind mm. of prime ministerial style interventions. Well, she's the Parliamentary Labour Party's favourite candidate now. And... You know, there will be this sense of retribution, I think, against the left. I don't think the failings are to do with policies, as I've said before. But, you know, it, it, it will be difficult 
in that situation. So what? I mean, what's the Ooh. what's the plan, Stan? What worries me about Yvette Cooper is, first of all, I don't think that the um, Parliamentary Labour Party, and that is, for those of you who don't know, essentially the Labour MPs who are in Parliament, I don't think they appreciate how much ordinary Labour members are hostile towards Tony Blair and also how much the public at large is sort of hostile towards, towards that time. But the other thing as well is that, like, no one... I'm not going to deny that there are failings and problems with the way that Jeremy Corbyn's leadership has been handled. But the fact is that there is a long-term problems with the Labour Party and it ties into the fact that the kind of Labour, the kind of politics that Labour has represented over the last kind of 20 years, this kind of social Democrat centre-left politics, is collapsing all over the Western mm. world. You can see that even before Jeremy Corbyn came along that Labour was already starting to go down that that route. The nick the nickname for it is um pacification because the first party that it happened to was PASOK, which is a party in Greece, which is like the Labour equivalent in Greece, and they went from being the dominant party to attracting like just a paltry um percentage of the vote. What was the percentage that they Uh they went they got won one election in 2009 with 44% and then after that the next election they went down to 4%. Yeah, exactly. And so you can Netherlands, Netherlands the party Labour was in government then they went down to I think they got about 7% uh in uh, blimey Well, in on. France just now with 6%. the socialists, yeah. The more radical... So you got there, people going to the radical uh, left. Mélenchon, who got nearly 20%, and then Marine Le Pen, who got a bit more and managed to get in. Yeah. Uh, Spain, Pessoe, the socialists there, they've kind of halved in their yeah. vote. Uh, and Because so, that's your right, isn't it? What you've seen is like a shift uh, in terms of, you know, the rise of the radical, kind of radical left movements and xenophobic right-wing movements on the other side. And it's structural. That's the problem. A lot of the Labour's problem here are just reflecting what's happened elsewhere. So here we've got, you know, we had the rise of the SNP in Scotland. We had the rise of UKIP. We had the Corbyn phenomenon, which would never have happened 15 years ago. These are all part yeah, I mean, of the same... Uh, you know, like you you were working for John McDonnell when he ran for leader. Over and a he, decade ago, yeah. And he's uh, Corbyn's shadow chancellor. And he came last. He came nowhere. And actually, like, the politics haven't changed. The politics of John McDonald and Jeremy Corbyn haven't changed since since John McDonald ran for leader. What's changed is the political circumstances so that so that someone of that ilk could go from coming absolutely nowhere in the election to, to getting a bigger majority than Tony Blair. Mm. And it's because circumstances have changed. Now, the Labour Party is in the same position as a lot of social democratic parties across Europe. And you might even say that, you know, Hillary Clinton is sort of suffering from the same problem which is actually the kind of thing that they're representing is just collapsing. And I do not believe that Ed, um, Yvette Cooper has the ability to dig Labour out of that hole. I just don't think that she does. You know, I, I think that when she thought that she would win the 2015 Labour leadership election, and when it became obvious that Jeremy Corbyn was going to win, her response was to say, who's the real radical? Is it Jeremy Corbyn or me, a woman? I mean, that's just not an answer. And I don't, you know, I think that all of them in, in that leadership election were completely blindsided by this sort of wave of anger and this insurgency, and they didn't know how to deal with it. And I, I just don't think that Yvette Cooper is is capable of responding to the kind of collapse of social democratic policies that we're seeing at the moment. So I think if she was to become leader, it would essentially be a form of palliative care for the Labour Party. She would, like, manage its decline. I mean, I really hope I'm proved wrong. I'm not saying this out of any sense of satisfaction. 
I really would be delighted to be proved wrong on this, but I think the way things are at the moment, I imagine that she will oversee the kind of managed decline of the Labour Party if she becomes leader. True, but I mean, at the end of the day, Labour is heading... What we want it to, to avoid is an absolute shall, shallacking season. I don't think I've ever said that word. First uh, time for everything. But it is that's what it's heading for, and it's obviously technically... Well, it is, it's a left-wing leader in charge, and for me, the failings haven't been due to ideas. It's to do with other things. But that's the kind of thing we'll have to wait for the aftermath. I think, for me, it's a case of, yeah, this is a really bad situation, but this isn't something specific to Britain, that social democratic parties led by people on the right, they're in a mess as well. And I think the problem is the left and right of Labour are all like, you know, shaking their fists at each other. But I think a lot of it is displaced frustration at their own lack of vision, strategy, new amounts of power. We're basically, we're all all a bit basically bereft of a clear vision, which is why it's unfortunate because, you know, when I've been frustrated with Jeremy Corbyn and all the rest of it, the fact is going into this election is that, you know, trying to come up with, you know, I keep arguing for a clear vision is for the last few years, you know, people like me haven't, I'm on the left, I've not been working on that the way I should have done. You know, I've written lots of, I mean, I'm a journalist, to be fair. It's not really my place to do that. But I've been looking at problems and injustices and exposing them rather than going, you know, let's roll the past leaves and sort them out and this is how. And, you know, having that clear vision that can appeal to people who aren't just rampant lefties. And I think, so, you know, and and that's what's frustrating. You know, it was a case of we didn't expect Jeremy to stand. We didn't expect Jeremy to win. Definitely didn't expect that whatsoever. And then we thought there'd be, you know, an election originally in 2020 and then Brexit happened, but there'd be time, someone else might take over. But I think all of this is, that the, the problem is, is this is this is not just about Britain. There's structural problems, the way the workforce has changed, demographic changes. There's now a massive gap between younger and older people. The big, according to the polling, the big divide isn't class in elections at the moment, it's age. Mm. That tw- the Labour, Labour have a majority of people 40 and under, the Tories have a, a huge majority amongst people 40 and over, and they're the ones who really come out and vote. And I don't know, you know, I don't think either side in Labour have really come up with an answer to that. Yeah, and I think actually one of the reasons I would suggest that, that the differentiator of who you vote for is now age rather than social class is because um, what we've seen over the last sort of 30 years is like the gradual collapse of the middle class. And that's what you can learn through generational politics is that if I'd been the age that I am now, 30 years ago, I probably could have bought a house in London. Mm. Whereas um, now, I mean, it's just completely impossible for me to ever imagine that. And so, you know, when people talk about generational politics, I don't think it's so much that the old are screwing the young. I think it's that over the last 30 years, the middle class in this country has collapsed and what you've got now is a small elite and a kind of sprawling working class. And so that's why age has become the differentiator is because actually working class people who are like in their 60s um, can like uh, probably still own a home, probably have a stable job and probably a pension even though they're they're working class. Whereas middle class people who are my age don't have any of those things because there's been a a gradual collapse of, of, of kind of the traditional structures. And I think one of the reasons why these social democratic parties are failing is because that collapse happened largely under their watch Mm -hmm. like obviously it started with Thatcher but these parties and Thatcher and Reagan in in America of course and then you know lots of different iterations of that around Europe but then it was inherited by people like Tony Blair like Bill Clinton you know like um, the socialists in France etc 
And um, instead of trying to uh, like create a new left-wing vision that was based on a different economy that was that understood the idea of class struggles they accepted most of the premise of yeah, like Thatcherite economics and they sort of tinkered with it so so now you know like if, if the left doesn't stand for trying to attra- address income inequality and trying to give people a stable life and what's the point of it and now, like, that's that's the existential problem that social democratic parties face, is that there's just no reason for them to exist. And so they are collapsing. Well, it especially is if you don't make the case of investing in the economy, like a lot of social democratic parties abandoned after the crash, there's not much left for you to say, really. And then it becomes an argument over yeah, competence. Because the right um, adopted, just, you know, if on a surface level, yes, maybe, the right adopted social liberalism. Yeah. So they adopted, like... LGBT rights, so it was a conservative government that legalised gay marriage in Britain, for example. Most Tory MPs didn't vote for it. Yes. They played, like, lip service to feminism. Now, I'm a feminist, and I'm not saying for any stretch of the imagination that Tories are actually feminists. They are not, but they did quite a good job of, you know, encouraging people to think that, like, that wasn't an issue anymore. So, really, because they kind of relaxed the idea of social liberalism, then... Um, and if you're wondering what social liberalism means, it means things like rights for women, rights for gay people, you know, like anti-racism, that kind of thing. Um, they did a good job of convincing people that, that they were sort of on board with that. Then it basically left the left with nowhere to go because they didn't have an economic vision and they couldn't fight on those grounds anymore. So the reason for existing ended and they are ending. And that's that's where we're at. Anyway, so... Come on, Ali. Cheer me up, I feel a bit That's depressed. like really miserable. So for the last bit of the podcast, we were going to talk about reasons to be cheerful, things to be hopeful about. Is there anything? Are you, are you happy about anything at the moment? Are you hopeful about anything? Well, I've just come back from Spain and look, Podemos are not a party in government and they had all these ambitions at the last elections in Spain in June that they could form a coalition that didn't pan out. That weekend sucked because we had to hear Brexit, Labour collapse into turmoil, then in Spain... They did not do as well as hoped in the election, and now they have a right-wing government. But Podemos were founded at the beginning of 2014, and by the end of 2015, they were the one of the three main parties in Spain. That was amazing. And what they do, and this is this is what I think the left have to learn about, is they say, you know, most people don't think in terms of left or right. They think definitely us, the people, against the people at the top. That works. Um, they redefine patriotism, what it is to be a patriot, fighting against, you know, you know, building a country, running the interests of the majority, that kind of thing. And, and you know, they, they use, instead of going back to kind of like red flags, the Internationale, Marx, that kind of thing, they tried to speak in a way that reached beyond that. So I spent the weekend with them, and though, look, they're not doing as well as they wanted to, um, you know, they are one of the three main parties. They're building, though. Of course, and, you know, there's obviously hope for the future, but I look at that and think that's what we should be doing. A lot of the failings we've had are to do with those kinds of things, which is like, you know, we've got this fired up constituency of people who uh, feel very radical and lefty. And then, um, and then, you know, kind of like patriotism, which people in England are very uncomfortable with on the left. They think it's xenophobia, bigotry, that kind of thing, imperialism. But you can redefine it. There's a great English history of people who fought against injustice, won our rights, chartists, suffragettes, uh, people who fought for the NHS. Uh, LGBT rights, you name it. So I think I think they give me a bit of hope. 
I am taking hope at the moment from the DSA, which is the Democratic Socialists of America. It's a new movement established in America. Um, it's like a democratic socialist organization, and they're having massive meetings around the country at the moment. They're the fastest growing socialist organization in America. Um, and I find them really exciting. I feel like there is a new movement in America where young people want to talk about socialism. And, you know, yes, they have Trump, but they also have a very big, very exciting resistance to Trump that has is finding its own language. And, you know, they might be starting from a lower position on the British left because they don't have like, you know, a Labour movement that's as strong as ours. And they don't have like a political party like the Labour Party that's sort of obligated to, you know, pay lip service to the left like the Labour Party is. Um, but like, I think they've got a lot better sense of direction that we are of, you know, than we have. And they have got a really good analysis of what the problems are in America in terms of the economy and what they need to do about it. And, um, and they don't fight amongst themselves as much. I don't, I don't think it looks from the outside. Uh, if you're from America, maybe you can correct me on that. And they've got a really good story to tell about what the problems in America are and how we got there and how we get out of it. And, and I think something's really happening there and it, that makes me feel really, really excited and like it makes me think there is hope. So everything's going to be fine, really, Ali, is that what you're saying? And the other thing I want to tell you is uh, Mad Men is now on Netflix, so that's good. Oh, oh, I've started getting into um, 13 Reasons Why. Ali, have you heard about that? I have not. Well, error. Stuffing yourself with M&Ms rather than... Yeah, that sound you can hear is me eating M&Ms big Eminem guzzler 13 reasons why right and it's um it sounds quite dark it's about uh, a schoolgirl who kills herself and then this is supposed to be reasons to be cheerful you I idiot. know but it's really really good okay I know that sounds really dark but it's a really amazing t- it's like you know these coming of age dramas are quite like in America they've got right, some great them. dramas coming out like Stranger Things did you watch Things that good yes love it the soundtrack honestly it's got the Smith you name it Love a bit of that. Mm, um, good. But this one as well, it's like that. It's it's so good. I think it's life-changingly good. And I think maybe I'll just, for the election period, just, just watch that and forget about everything else. I'm just going to watch Mad Men. I love Mad Men. You're just going to sit in your pants watching that, are you? So finally, Ellie, right, this has been more somber than normal because of the election. So what we're going to do next time is we're going to have a guest and just, you know, liven it up a bit. Can we please ask our listeners to tell us who they would like on this podcast? Um, because you very kindly listened to us in large numbers, the first podcast we did. So we were the third most listened podcast in Britain at one point. Pretty exciting. Yeah. So, so thanks, guys. Just yeah, say thank thanks. you. Thank you. Um, thank you, India. <laughs> thank you, <laughs> listeners. Thank you for downloading our podcast. Catching. Yeah, so basically, we can persuade people to come on and talk to us because you guys listen to us. So if you have any thoughts about who you'd like to listen to talking to us, please, please do get in touch and um, we will lobby we'll lobby the shit out of them. We'll lobby them into next week or oh, next Oh, they'll fortnight. get lobbied so hard. They'll get the lobbying of their lives. Yeah, I think we're done. So thanks, everyone, and uh, we'll be more cheerful next time, but uh, yeah. got to work with the material we've forward. got. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for listening in, and uh, we'll be back next time with some someone who's better and cleverer and Wait. funnier than us. And is... happier, probably. <laughs> Good luck with that. Bye. Bye. But I don't worry about a thing, because I know nothing's going to be all right. Yeah.